0: And this evening, first Kings chapter seventeen, and verses eight through sixteen. We started last week. We looked at first Kings chapter seventeen verses one through seven and tonight we'll take that next little Pericope, that next little section there, verses eight through sixteen. And let's go ahead and we'll pray for the reading and preaching of the Word tonight together. Well, Father, so your Word deeply in our hearts and minds this evening. May it come alive in our very presence, even as it is the very living Word. May we find that our souls are enlivened by your truth as we seek to honor you, our living God. In Christ's name, Amen. First Kings chapter seventeen verses eight through sixteen this is the holy inerrant word of God. And the word of the Lord came to him, I meaning Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son." For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rains upon the earth. She went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke. By Elijah. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I want you to look back up, if you will, to the passage before that we looked at last week. And just that very, those very last two verses there, verses six and seven, We're told, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And then you get to verse 7, and we read, and after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And then it leads into our passage this evening. You will remember from last week that Elijah had been called by God to go to the nation of Israel, And in particular to this wicked king Ahab and to announce that there was going to be a drought in the land and that there was going to be a famine as a result in this land. And the reason is because the people of Israel were wicked. They were forsaking God and they were living underneath a wicked king, Ahab. And so God sent a drought upon the land, and famine quickly followed. But He provided for His servant Elijah. He told him to go by this brook Cherubith. And as He went by that brook, He fed him morning and evening by ravens that were bringing in different portions of meat and bread so that He could eat both morning and night. And then there was water for Him to drink from this brook Cherubith. But then that verse 7, and after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And now we have to ask this question. Why is it that God would have this brook dry up? Why not continue to provide for Elijah in the land? I'll offer three reasons for you this evening. Three reasons for God moving Elijah from that brook. First so we might see an example of faith second so we might see the effect of faithlessness and third to demonstrate the worthiness of the object of our faith so first so we might see an example of faith second so we might see the effects of un of, of faithlessness and then third to demonstrate the worthiness of the object of our faith so first he moves Elijah so we might see the example of faith. We see it both in Elijah, and we're also going to see it in this widow of Zarephath. We see it in both of them. They, they are presented, as it were, by the writer of 1 Kings and as God as examples for you and I to imitate. So, God commands the prophet Elijah to journey outside of Israelite territory to go to the city of Zarephath, this city that lies on the Mediterranean Sea. It was a city that was about seven miles south of the city of Sidon, which you will be more familiar with as you think about the Old Testament Scriptures, Tyre and Sidon, those two wicked cities. And it was just south of there that Zarephath was. This is a city that was in the heart of Phoenicia. So this is Gentile pagan territory that Elijah is being sent to as he is sent out of the land of Israel. And we see the example of Elijah's faith in this. Imagine God... Saying to this man who is in the land of the people of God, the, the land that is to be flowing with milk and honey, the place of promise, and the place of provision, and the place of blessing, and God says, Go there. Go to that pagan Gentile land. And Elijah does. He he takes a step of faith and he goes. In fact, that very name Zarephath comes from a verb that refers to the, the metallurgic process that you would refine metals, you would burn and get the dross off of the metals. And that's what's happening here. There would have been very little need for Elijah to grow in faith as he sat by the brook Cherubith, kind of the Shangri La there, just enjoying the food that's delivered and the water that he could drink and He had meat and he had bread, but the life of faith is not stagnant, and so God challenges him and even encourages that his faith might grow, and so he pushes him out. A.W. Pink, commenting upon this passage, said, it's easy to trust in God's gifts rather than God, and so it would have been easy just to remain by that brook, and that's true. God often, though not always, but often He takes from His people how He has been providing for them so that He might provide for them in another way. Not to be mean, but rather so they might grow to trust Him and not simply trust in His gifts. It's subtle, but we're so prone to it. We're so weak to giving into it. We just begin to trust in the brook Cherubith instead of the God who provided the brook Cherubith. So Elijah's brook dries up. He must go. It's a step of faith, especially to go there. When he arrives in Zarephath, he meets this woman this woman is a widow. This is the poorest of the poor in the ancient world. She is simply trying to survive. We meet her collecting wood. She's no doubt collecting wood, as she tells us, so that she can take what little food she has left, and she can start that fire, and she can cook this this flour and this oil that she has left over to make a last loaf of bread for her and her son. These are awful circumstances, but there's a ray of hope in it. You notice that when Elijah inquires of her, she says, as the Lord your God lives, she recognizes that the God of Elijah is the living God. She has some manner of faith. I don't know how particular it is, but some knowledge of who this God is. But if her life was not already difficult enough, Elijah makes this bold and he makes a demanding request. He asks that she take this little bit of flour and this little bit of oil that she has and that she she make a cake, that she bake a cake first for him. And she pleads and she says she only has enough just for herself and for her son And they are planning on eating it and then just dying because there's nothing left. Elijah, he makes this bold and demanding request. It's no small ask for a poor woman with a starving son. All her motherly instincts must have recoiled in that moment as he requests that she give this last bit of her flour and her oil to him. She didn't know Elijah, but she knew her son, and she knew what she had left one son, one jar of flour, one jug of oil, enough to make one cake. Elijah, though, tells her, Do not fear. Do not fear. He he comforts her before he challenges her. Do not fear. He says she is to do as she planned. She is to make that cake for her son and herself. They are to eat of it. But first, she must make him a cake to eat as he requested. Then she can make hers. Do not fear. Just take this step of faith. God's promised. This is a test of faith that requires going against the most basic yet strong pulls in human nature. God would supply all that she required, but would she trust in the moment? Faith is always severely tested in the moment, in the moment. It's in moments like these where God strips everything to leave our soul exposed and naked so that the only question left on the table is will I trust in faith when I have nothing but His promise? Nothing. That's when faith is really tested. This widow, she's an amazing example of faith. I think she didn't enjoy all of these privileges of the people of Israel. She lived in a pagan land. She lived among a pagan people. She lived under a pagan king herself. And yet her faith in that moment serves as a model for the people of God. It's often the most unlikely who are the most faith-filled. And we see that time and again in Scripture. It, don't dismiss small and insignificant people. They're often the greatest giants in the faith. In fact Jesus will point this out He'll point this out about this widow when he's condemning his own generation in Luke 4 Jesus is among his hometown people in Nazareth the city of his upbringing and the people in that city are they knew him they have grown up with him they have watched him grow up in their midst they have lived with him for at least 30 years They know His character. They know that when He speaks, He speaks truth. They have seen His work ethic. They have seen His life. They've lived with Him. And then there's that day that Jesus goes into the synagogue there in Nazareth and He grabs the scroll of Isaiah and He stands up and He reads it. And then He rolls that scroll up and He says, this is fulfilled in your hearing. They don't have faith. They can't hear him. They had all the privileges of knowing him his entire life, but they don't reply with faith. They reply with question. They say, is not this Joseph's son? And Jesus points back to this passage. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. The ones who should have believed didn't. The ones who had the greatest privilege. They enjoyed all the blessings of being among the people of God. They were in the right place at the right time. They had every evidence before them. They didn't believe. There's so much warning here for us in the church. All the privileges we enjoy. The widow of Zarephath has nothing. And she believed. people of Jesus' own hometown in that Gospel account in Luke 4, they will push him outside of the city. It is complete and utter rejection by his friends, his family. And they push him all the way to, we're told by Luke, to the the brow of a cliff because they want to push him over the cliff so that he dies. The most privileged, the most primed for faith, the most blessed by the community they lived in, and yet they have no faith. How often people who are closest to God's graces are the furthest from His kingdom. And that's a warning for us. That's a warning for you covenant children. You have to believe. You have all of these blessings in the midst of this. You're in this. Ah, Jesus is set before you week in and week out. You're so close. But you have to believe. There's also the faith of Elijah in this request. There's a, an oddness, I think, in this request. I think he had to feel somewhat foolish in saying it, and she had to feel somewhat foolish in doing it. It doesn't make practical sense to do what he is saying to do. It doesn't make any sense. From the world's perspective, actions of faith often look foolish. But trusting God according to his promises is never foolish. That doesn't mean that we do all things without thought or planning or knowledge or calculation or foresight. No. We notice here that they are operating in faith according to God's Word. They are standing upon His promises. Elijah, upon the promise that God has made to him. And this widow of Zarephath is standing upon the promise that she has received through the prophet from God. They are standing upon the promises of God. This is not just wishful thinking. Faith always stands upon the promises of God. And yet it is always seen as foolish and silly by the world, but it is always a sure foundation for us. But I want you to think about this especially with this example of faith a great miracle in this text is that this, this jar and this jug that, that they don't ever run out. She makes cakes in the morning. She makes cakes in the evening. And the jar is filled again. And the jug is filled again. But here's what's fascinating to me. It's not as if what God did is He could have laid out jugs and jars for months of provision for her. He could have given her jar after jar after jar, jug after jug after jug, jug, and just stacked them up in the corner and said, there you go. You're covered for the next six months. But he doesn't do that. He just fills it each day. The jar and the jug. Because it's just the next step of faith. Faith is lived from moment to moment in dependence upon God, and he is showing that to Elijah, he's showing it to this widow of Zarephath, he's showing it to us. Every morning she would make the cake with the flour and the oil that she had and have to decide whether she had enough for that evening. And then she would go to bed that evening with a full stomach, and she would have to go to bed in faith. Or she'd have a restless night. Would she wake up in the morning and there be food to feed her son in the morning? And over and over it must have gone through her head what Elijah said, do not be afraid. And she had to stand upon the promise of God. Faith is not just a momentary thing for us in the Christian life. It's not like you just have faith in that great crisis moment and you've shown faith and now all the rest of life is void of that faith. No, what God does is He leads you from moment of dependence to moment of dependence to moment of dependence so that every single moment you just have to take the next step of faith. That's what it looks like to live a life of faith. Now, She had all kinds of blessings. She had all kinds of Ebenezer stones that she could look at. She could say, you know, I remember last Thursday when I went to bed and my faith wavered a little bit. I wasn't quite sure. Would there be enough flour and oil in the morning? I woke up on Friday morning there was flour and there was oil. She could remember last Tuesday and say, you know what? We only ate half the cake in the morning and yet God still provided the same amount the next day on Wednesday morning. She had Ebenezer stones that are set up, which reminding her of God's promises and God's faithfulness, but she still had to have faith in the next moment. It's a life of faith from moment to moment, living in dependence upon him. When the Israelites are in the wilderness, the manna can only be collected each day. They rise each morning, tested whether they will venture out of their tent in faith. They go to bed each night tested as to whether they will rest in faith. And so it is over and over and over in the Christian life. God gives us His promise and then He gives us just enough to take the next step. Much of the counseling I do with people that are in absolute horrific circumstances from an earthly sense is this. This huge thing has happened, and I try and remind them, you know what? This is huge. It's overwhelming. It's absolutely overwhelming. It will undo you. It will rack you. You will not sleep. You will not be able to eat. You will not drink. But all you have to do is just be faithful in this moment. That's all it is. That's all God is asking of you. Is this moment today, will you take a step in faith? And then he'll give you enough light tomorrow that you can take that step of faith tomorrow. And he'll give you enough light the next day, you can take a step of faith the next day. It's just moment to moment living in faith. Second, first we have the examples. Second, God moves Elijah to show him and us the effects of unfaithfulness among the people of God. To show him and us the effects of unfaithfulness among the people of God. When Elijah journeys to this pagan Gentile territory, he finds the same conditions as the covenant people of God were facing in Israel. Why? Why? Why is that the case? He's no longer in Israel. Because the judgment that God has brought upon Israel also had effects upon the surrounding nations. It wasn't limited just to the people of God. So when He brought drought and when He brought famine in the land of Israel, it also affected the people of Phoenicia. It affected these people in Sidon and Zarephath, and Tyre. The effects of unfaithfulness among God's people has far-reaching implications beyond themselves. When God's people are unfaithful, the world suffers time and again. I want to consider this about the singular and at a corporate level. Let's think about it at a singular level. As an individual Christian, if we entertain sin with the comfort that no one else will know, and this sin, the the ramifications that may come in my life, it's worth it to do this sin because the pleasure is that great, and so I'm willing to, to suffer some of the consequences of this sin, and no one else will see, no one else will know, and that's how we rationalize it. So how we think about these hidden sins that we like to engage in. But the reality is that our sins always have an effect upon those around us. Always. The tentacles of sin are far-reaching. That is true for the church. That is true for individuals. So that when I sin, it always affects those around me. This is one of the The things that always happens when an unrepentant sinner is faced with their sin and they're wrestling with it and all of a sudden they have this aha moment as they are confronted with their sin and they are brought to true conviction and they are led to real repentance is that they realize, ah, my sin's affected him and it's affected her and it's affected him and it's affected them and it's affected this. On a corporate level, I want to consider the church being unfaithful by embracing false teaching. When the people of God receive, or they adopt, or they practice heresy, it affects the world around. We're to be light in the world. Now, the church is but darkness. We're to be salt, but we lose our saltiness. Our good works are no longer seen in the world. It no longer has that kind of, that, that seasoning effect in our culture where our modeling righteous living and right living and moral living has an impact in a common grace way upon the society that we live in. And society quickly deteriorates. I remember reading, it was probably 20 years ago now, it was in a a British newspaper, and it was an editorial by a British atheist who was writing an open letter to Christians. And he was writing an open letter to Christians, and he was asking Christians to function like Christians again. And he was begging the church to be the church again. You know why? Though he didn't believe in God. He said we can see the effects of the church not being the church in our society. And it's not good. The effects are catastrophic. Israel's sins are affecting the world around it. And moving Elijah allows the Jews and allows us to see the effects of faithlessness. Third, God moves Elijah to demonstrate the worthiness of God as the object of faith. To demonstrate the worthiness of God as the object of faith. God is sovereign over all the earth. He doesn't simply rule over the nation of Israel. He also rules over Phoenicia. He doesn't simply rule over the nation of Israel. He rules over Babylon. He doesn't simply rule over the nation of Israel. He rules over the United States of America. And Elijah is moved to Phoenicia so that we might see this. This place is important. This isn't just any Gentile pagan territory. If you look back at chapter 16, verse 31, look at what it says of this woman that Ahab marries. And if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians and went and served Baal and worshiped him. This was his land. Jezebel's father is the king of the Sidonians. He is the king of this land that now Elijah has been sent to. Jezebel will be seeking Elijah's death and he's hiding out in her father's land. Josephus, the Jewish historian, he. We'll quote from one of the Phoenician authors who says that the king who reigned before Ethbaal, that is Jezebel's father, was slain by Ethbaal, who was a priest of Astart. That is, Ethbaal, Jezebel's father, was a priest in the Ashtoreth. That's how we have it in the Old Testament the Ashtoreth cult, the counterpart to Baal. So no wonder Jezebel was so intent on seeing Baal worship flood into the land of Israel. Her father was a priest in this cultic worship. And this is where Elijah is sent. So God goes on the offensive He sends his prophet to the very heart of this land, of this false worship, from which Israel's false worship has gained momentum. And what does he do when he sends his prophet there? He shows that he himself is sovereign even over the homeland of Baal. Baal is supposed to be the god of rain and fertility, and yet there's drought there. And yet, God can provide unending bread. He can provide unending oil. He can provide unending food for these two people of faith, this widow and Elijah and then her entire household. Why? Because He's God over that land too. It's helpful to remember about 1 Kings that this book was written during the Babylonian exile. And so... You have the Jews that are scattered throughout the Babylonian Empire, and they are receiving this book of First Kings, and therefore there's a very real message to the Jews as they're scattered throughout the Babylonian Empire, and they are in this pagan foreign land that even as God showed himself to be the God of Elijah and he wasn't just limited to Israel, but he was also the God over Phoenicia, so they are reminded, even as they are in Babylonian exile, that God is not somehow more distant from you. He's not gone. He's just as much king over Babylon as he was over Israel. He's just as much your king today as he was your king then. We sent out Sam and Abby just a few weeks ago to serve in East Asia. This was what I communicated to them a couple of different times. Because we know it, and yet if you've ever been somewhere where it's not home, and you're surrounded by pagan worship, and you're surrounded by people that don't have the influence of the Christian faith in their society like we observe here, at least the remnants of it here, that that doubt creeps in. So remind them that the same God who brought you to saving faith in America, the same God that grew you in the faith, the same God that you enjoyed and you knew sweet communion with here in the United States of America is the same God that is just as near to you in Southeast Asia. Same God. Because as the scriptures say over and over, He is God of the heavens and God of the earth. He is God over all. It's all His dominion. All His dominion. We don't always know what God will do in our generation. Elijah didn't know. We know what he calls us to, and Elijah knew what he was called to. He was called to faith, and he was called to faithfulness. It may not always look like we desire it to look, but it's always living from moment to moment in dependence upon him and reminding ourselves from moment to moment as we depend upon him that he is sovereign over all things, that he is God of the heavens and God of the earth, and that he rules in all places, and that's our God. So his promises are worth standing on. He's worth looking to in faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who is worthy of our faith. We're thankful that you have given promises to your people. We pray that we would stand upon those promises. We pray that we would not get too far down the road, but that we would seek to be faithful in this moment and to live dependently upon you in this moment, looking to you in faith in this moment, that we might give you glory. And we trust and we believe that you will provide for us in. The moment that comes after and the moment that comes after that and the moment that comes after that because truly you are a great God. God who is the God of your people and it is a delight to be your people. We give you praise and glory in Christ's name. Amen.